Aren't all religions basically the same? What makes Jesus so special? When you talk about going to heaven and that kind of thing, who's heaven? What do you mean by heaven and things like that? These are some of the questions that people will sometimes raise when you begin to share your faith with them. And uh, so on Wednesday nights, we've been kind of talking about that a little bit. We've been going through sort of a series that we have called Always Be Ready based on Peter's writings in 1 Peter 3.15, always uh, or set, up, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer for those who ask you a reason for the hope that's within you and to do it with meekness and fear or gentleness and respect. And so, you know, a lot of people are kind of nervous about sharing their faith. They're a little tentative about engaging with people. You know, if somebody, you know, asks them, hey, what, you read your Bible? You believe that stuff? You know, sometimes that, you know, for some that's seen as a great open door. For others, it's kind of a frightening thing. And there's sort of a, a defensive posture that might be taken just out of concern with, you know, not sure what to say and all those kinds of things. So our gatherings on Wednesday night, uh, Wednesday nights recently, we've been kind of talking about that, trying to take some of the edge off and deal with some of the harder uh, questions that get asked and those kinds of things. And so last night we basically talked about some of those questions I just opened up with. You know, what makes uh, Christianity true and others false? Do you really believe that there's only one way to heaven? You know, why, um, you know, aren't all religions basically the same and those kinds of things? And, and you know, if we're going to be honest, those are questions that not only come up a lot, but they're kind of fair questions for people that don't necessarily understand uh, what the Christian faith is about, or for that matter, really what's the heart of a lot of religions. Uh, so maybe let's start with that. You know, aren't all religions basically the same? Well, that's a common one again, right? And so you've probably heard it yourself. Well, you know, if we just take a moment to unpack that a little bit, to pick that apart, it doesn't take long to really demonstrate that that's not a, a reasonable view. Uh, it is true that on some level, on some surface level, most religions have something in common. You know, they basically all have some kind of a moral code that has some similar things. You should love your neighbor, things like this. You should try to be kind to people and be a good person and things like this, you know. Most religions teach you not to murder and things like that. So I won't say all, but most, you know. Um, so when we look at that, uh, it's, it would seem as though all religions are basically the same. And uh, But when you get down to the heart of it, all religions ultimately are different at the core. In other words, the very core beliefs that produce their set of moral codes is uh, is different. They come from different starting points. Um, you know, for example, no Muslim would ever say that Islam is the same as Hinduism. Uh, matter of fact, no Buddhist would ever say that Buddhism is the same as Hinduism. No one understands that, you know. Uh, and so, uh, you know, if I can give an extreme example, uh, and this is kind of gross, but in the Old Testament there were a group of people uh, who worshipped a god called Molech, and Molech was worshipped by uh, creating or you know uh, constructing an iron idol of this god Molech, and the, the the stomach, the gut, would be hollowed out, and it would be filled with you know with wood and things like this to start a uh, and, you know coal kind of, whatever you know burning kinds of things in order to 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 have a fire burning in the gut of this idol. And the arms of this idol were extended outward. And as they would worship, they would worship this god by taking uh, infants, newborn infants, and 
they would scream and shriek and the, the people, they would beat on drums and they would make all kinds of raucous noise and everything. And then they would place the babies into the arms of this white hot idol. And as the baby screamed in agony, it would roll into the fiery hot belly of this idol and be burned alive. Now, that is an extreme example of a religion that is, hopefully you'd agree, is way out there, completely off, off base and wrong and horrifying and, and such. But you'd never doubt their sincerity. I mean, what kind of a mother would put their child into that circumstance if they weren't sincere, right? And so sometimes people say, well, as long as you're sincere what you believe, you know, you'll be okay. Well, clearly that's not true, right? We hopefully have some sense in which we, we believe there's more than sincerity that's required. There has to be some truth behind it, right? Uh, and so it's not just sincerity, and clearly not all religions are the same. Most religions would look on that kind of practice and, and be horrified with it. All religions are not the same. And so when we say they are, we generally say they are because we're either uninformed about it or we want to just sort of lump them all together so that we don't have to really deal with the distinctions, either because we don't want to have to sort it all out because we think it's pointless, or maybe we believe that religion is behind all the evil in the world and all those kinds of things, um, or, uh, you know, on, on the off chance that there's an honest concern about it, uh, it may very well be that people don't want to investigate it because they're concerned that they actually come across the truth and be accountable to it. And so come from different places, you know, background-wise, mindset-wise, and things like this. And so when we're confronted for our faith, and someone says, oh, you really believe that, or aren't all religions the same? I think it becomes a great opportunity for us. And even though we might be a little frightened about the engagement because we're afraid maybe it'll become hostile or something like that, maybe I think it's worth diving in and, and learning how to share our faith in those circumstances. So let's address a couple of these things. Um, aren't all religions basically the same? We basically just kind of gave a, an example of that, and you can use those examples too. Um, but you can simply just explain that, you know, all religions may on the surface appear the same at a very shallow surface level, but the core beliefs of those things are not the same. Uh, in, in Hinduism, there's a pantheon of 330 million gods. In Islam, they are strictly monotheistic, and they reject the idea of the Trinity. In Christianity, of course, we have the triune view of the nature of God as we believe it's, it's expressed in Scripture. Um, you know, uh, Baha'i, which is a faith that is kind of all-encompassing, has its own claim to exclusivity, and all religions do, by the way. Um, but in Baha'i, where it's this all-accepting kind of a thing, there still comes a point where you either believe that that's true or it's not. And so Baha'i would believe that if you don't believe that all religions basically can be embraced and worshipped and such, then you're wrong. Well, that's a claim to exclusivity at the point. And and all religions basically have this, and most people don't stop to think about that. They think it's just Christianity has this view, or it's just Judaism, or it's just Islam, or something like that. But all belief systems have some claim to exclusivity at some point, and that's an important distinction for people to understand. Um, so what makes Christianity different? What makes Christianity unique? What makes it true? What makes it the only way? After all, didn't Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, in John chapter 14, verse 6. Um, well, let's start with something very basic. 
in making that claim that I'm the way, the truth, the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, Jesus forced us into a position of having to either believe that statement is true or to believe that it's false. It's a very reasonable statement to make. It makes sense. It's just a matter of whether or not it's true. If it's not true, then you know, blow it off, man. There's no reason to be following Jesus. If, if, you know, if he's saying things like this and they're not true, then we probably shouldn't follow him. But if it is true, if that statement is in fact true, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him, then that statement affects everybody. That is the most important truth that any human being could have to grapple with, right? And so uh, that claim is something that we have to consider. Now, when it comes to the person of Christ, this begins to build our, our explanation of why Christianity is unique. It's unique not because it has a different set of rules than other religions. Uh, our faith is not simply based on the idea that we have a different set of uh, rules or noble truths or tenets or something like this. The Christian faith is based squarely, rooted completely, tethered entirely, anchored in Jesus himself. If you take Jesus out of Christianity, you don't have a system anymore, uh, which is different than a lot of other religions. Maybe not all. You might argue that Islam and Muhammad and things like this maybe are sort of similarly on par, but I don't really know if the claims of Christ really set him apart. Muhammad never claimed to be God, for example, where Jesus repeatedly made claims, both explicitly and implicitly. Things that he said, again, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Uh, his claim to be able to forgive sins, rightly, uh, he was rightly accused that that's something that only God has a right to do. Well, that's true, but that's the implicit claim Jesus was making. And we can see this uh, throughout the entire New Testament. And so the claims that Jesus make are unique in that he sets himself apart as being God. Now, not that no one else in history has ever claimed to be God, uh, but the other thing I would add to that is that Jesus also not only said he was God, but the things that he did demonstrated that he was God. For example, he demonstrated not just power, but authority over sickness and health, over demonic activity. Uh, he spoke to the weather and it responded to him. Uh, he is unique not only in his claims, but in his ability to demonstrate the truth of his claims. He did things that only God could do. And of course, the disciples, particularly if we look at somebody like John, and as he writes his gospel, uh, you know, uh, he talks about how in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without, it, without him, nothing was made that was made. Uh, John, the apostle, somebody who knew him personally and saw the things he did and heard the things that he said, uh, was somebody who bore witness of the truthfulness of the claims that Jesus made. John himself believed these things, and so did many others. Now, one of the most uh, incredible miracle of all that Jesus did, and, and this is, uh, again, one of these uh, incredible things that set him apart, is that he rose from the dead. Now, his resurrection from the dead is the single greatest miracle of all. Not that other people hadn't been resuscitated, not that other people hadn't been raised by others from the dead in Scripture, we see that. But Jesus claimed that he would be crucified and that he would raise himself from the dead. Uh, uh, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And John makes the point of recognizing that Jesus was talking about his body. 
And so the idea of his, uh, or the, the, the fact of his resurrection was something he claimed he would do and then did, and there's evidence of this by eyewitnesses. Uh, the disciples who were scared to death after Jesus was killed, thinking that they were going to be doomed next, um, they, their entire testimony was based on the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. They went to their uh, horrifying deaths, making that claim and clinging to it. Uh, there, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there were uh, over 500 people at one time who, uh, who saw him uh, raised from the dead. After his death, he was alive. And so the truth of the resurrection is something that can be demonstrated. Uh, and of course, non-biblical non uh, secular writers of the time uh, verify that this was the claim that the Christians made. Course, uh, there's lots of other things we can bring to bear on that. Well, you know, we've talked about some of these in the past. We'll talk about them again. But his resurrection, the gr the greatest miracle uh, that that demonstrates who he was and the truth of the claims that he made. Now, one other element I'll bring to this is that Jesus' death and resurrection were prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. And so, when we talk about um, the uniqueness of the Christian faith, one of the things that we can point to is biblical prophecy. Uh, when we talk about prophecy about the coming of Christ, we have prophecies that speak about where he'd be born, uh, the very city he'd be born in, uh, various things about his ministry, including his death and resurrection, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. He talks about how Jesus uh, died and was buried and was rose again, all according to the scriptures. And so this becomes a really important thing. Uh, there is, of course, uh, descriptions about his suffering in great detail. There is the fact that he would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, all of these things, and there are over 300 of these that speak about Jesus' first coming. And so this is, and, and with incredible specificity. As a matter of fact, one that I always like to bring up that describes just how specific these prophecies are. Uh, in Luke 19, as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, on a donkey, as prophesied by Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, again, fulfillment of prophecy. As he approached the city, he wept over it. And he wept over it for a very specific reason. He, in that passage, uh, Luke records how he wept over the, the city of Jerusalem because how he had longed to gather them like a, like a mother under uh, you know, her chicks and such, but they would not have it. As a matter of fact, he said, you because you did not recognize this your day. What does that mean? Well, in the book of Daniel, uh, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 to 27, Daniel's given a prophecy about 70 weeks. It's We've spoken about this in the past in our prophetic, our prophecy updates, I should say. You have state to use the word prophetic. Uh, I'm talking because of the uses of the term. But when we've talked about prophecy, we've talked about Daniel's 70th week, biblical prophecy. Well, in that prophecy, Daniel is told by the angel that from the command to go forth and rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah the Prince uh, will be a certain specified period of time, uh, which could actually be added up in like in days, literally. You could literally have taken the number of days from that that command to rebuild Jerusalem until the day that Messiah was supposed to come into Jerusalem and declare himself to be Messiah. 
Now, when you look at the life of Jesus in the, in the Gospels, you see that there were a number of times that there were those who tried to prop him up and set him up to be king, but he refused. He wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. He, he walked away. Uh, he walked through their midst. He didn't take that on because his time had not yet come, and you see that phrase in there often. Well, finally, on this particular day, Jesus not only allows it, he sets it up. And he tells his disciples to go, and there's going to be a donkey tied here, and go bring it, and the, the master needs it, and you can read about it in the Gospels. Well, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that very day that Daniel spoke about. In other words, when Daniel gave that prophecy, the intention was, is that those who were alive at the time of, the, of those days running out, coming to that very day, would literally be waiting for Messiah to show up, because that was the day that he would come. And Jesus indicted the Pharisees and scribes for not recognizing the times and seasons in which they were living. And even on top of that, he said that the destruction that came upon Jerusalem, which ultimately came in 70 AD, was a direct result of their having not recognized that Jesus, Messiah, had come. And so that kind of specificity, when we talk about... Uh, when we talk about uh, Bible prophecy, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Not vague kinds of things, but really, really specific kinds of things. Things that you can bank on. Uh, and again, Jesus expected them at that time to have been waiting for him because that was the day that the Lord had made. And so um, that being said, these are just a few things that you can begin to share in those conversations to help people understand uh, the, how the Christian faith is unique, and it is, it's in fact true, uh, and it stands apart from all other religions. And so I share that with you with the hope that you'll use it. And, uh, and of course there are other things too, but this is kind of a starting point that I'm hoping will give you a good place to, um, uh, to begin to engage. And so let me pray that we will take those opportunities, that we not be afraid. And, you know, if you, if, you, if you go at it and it doesn't go well, just get back up on the horse and keep going. Everyone we talk to is an eternal being, and it becomes important for us um, to be about the Lord's business and letting the Holy Spirit use us in those moments to ultimately help people come to faith. And we want to lead people to that point where they do, in fact, receive Christ personally and are saved from their sin. And so, Father, we just want to ask you to help us to be bold, to be courageous, to trust that you'll be with us in those moments and you'll teach us and help us learn how to share our faith in a way that will ultimately help to convince and convict as the Holy Spirit does, uh, Father, of the truth of the gospel and that people will put their trust in him, the one who came to ultimately pay for our sins and make us right before you. Thank you, Lord, for all of the evidence you've given us and help us to learn how to share these things effectively with the intention, again, of people coming to believe. This is a work that only you can do, but we want to avail ourselves to you that you would accomplish those things. Father, we thank you for this. We praise you and bless you and commit ourselves to you and ask you to use us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'll tell you what, as always, if you have comments, questions, maybe suggestions like, hey man, I've, I've shared this and this was a really helpful thing, go ahead and put that in the comments below here on our YouTube channel or on my personal website at parsonspad.com. Uh, you can also uh, email me from parsonspad.com or from our church's website at calvarychapelfranklin.com. And I'd encourage you to do that so we can kind of interact on some of these things. But in any case, God bless you as you go about uh, sharing the good news of the gospel. Lord bless you.